0: On the 2nd of January, Cape Town, South Africa is infused with an enormous burst of color. Thousands of brightly dressed marchers swarm the city for Caps Clubs, a New Year's celebration that has to be seen to be believed. The marchers belong to fiercely competing clubs, but they all wear the same basic costume. Top hats, bow ties, and suits with the club colors. They paint their faces, carry canes and tambourines, and dance through the city streets. But Caps Clubs isn't just any parade. Until recently, it was known as Coon Carnival, and those dancing troops look a lot like a technical or update of an old minstrel show, the performance style that spread from the American South to become popular worldwide in the late 19th century. But if you look at the faces of the marchers, you'll realize that Caps clubs is anything but racist, as Kuhn usually implies. Instead, it reflects the diversity of South Africa, drawing on musical traditions that go back over a century. Surprised? Well, you shouldn't be. Africa's cultural landscape is full of creative borrowing from unexpected places. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Today, we explore the logic of these far-flung cultural connections. We'll hear about everything from dire straits in the Sahara to pedal steel in Nigeria as we try Accounting for Taste. Stay tuned.
1: Da,
2: come all the Dixies, ja al Dixies, they come from Johannesburg. Oh, da, come all the Dixies, ja al
1: Dixies, they come from Johannesburg. I <mimérica> request
0: Minstrel shows first reached South Africa in the second half of the 19th century. Groups like the Christie Minstrels and Orpheus McAdoo's Virginia Jubilee Singers capitalized on their international fame to tour the world. Playing to fans who knew them by their popular sheet music.
1: the
0: The impact of African American performers like the Jubilee Singers cannot be overstated. Performing a combination of parlor song and spirituals. The group was an inspiration to black South Africans, and their music would be a major influence on the choral sound South Africa is famous for today. The Christie minstrels are, well, a different story. White performers wearing blackface, they told racist jokes, danced foolishly around the stage, and sang songs written in fake dialect.
3: The sun shines bright in the old Kentucky home, it is summer the darkies are gay.
0: Despite all of this, the Christie minstrels were widely popular with Cape Town residents. While their audiences were initially white, The style soon spread among all of Cape Town, regardless of race. Although the minstrel form was created to mock African-Americans, it also served as an international channel for their culture. And soon, performers, many of whom were classed as colored themselves, had begun to form clubs or clubs to imitate the minstrel shows. As the clubs got better and bigger they began to compete incorporating influences from Dutch and Cape Malay folk music And before you know it, you had the wild public display of Kuhn Carnival <laughs> In the 1940s, South Africa's apartheid government began to crack down on the celebration. In 1966, District 6 in Cape Town was declared a whites-only area, and the community that had been at the heart of the carnival was scattered. Still, dedicated groups continued to practice their traditions, parading around the tracks of the sporting stadiums to which the festival had been confined. Maintaining their culture, in this case, imitating racist white performers pretending to be black, became a paradoxical act of rebellion. Let's hear Beetle by the Genuines, a Cape Town group influenced by this heritage. Next exploration of taste, we go to producer Sam Baker.
4: This is Chet Bagatha, a track off Amasa so cool, the breakout 2004 record from the Tuareg Ishimar group Tanarawan. In the decades since its release, the band has grown into one of the biggest success stories in African music. Releasing four critically acclaimed albums, they've created a worldwide fascination for their loping, guitar-heavy style and opened the gates for a flood of similar Tuareg groups from the north of Mali and Niger. When asked about the Western music that influences their unique sound, these bands name-check the usual suspects. Marley, Hendrix, Michael Jackson. But another name also appears in the list, pretty much every time. Dire
2: Straits
4: Formed in London in 1977, Dire Straits was one of the most popular rock groups of the 1980s. You might know their hits Money for Nothing or Sultans of Swing, which we're hearing right now. The band was led by guitarist and singer Mark Knopfler, whose spare, stingingly precise playing became legendary. And in addition, Dyer also became the most popular rock band in the Sahara Desert. So how did this happen? We asked Chris Kirkley, who runs the Sahel Sounds label and blog, both of which are dedicated to exploring popular culture in Niger and Mali.
5: I think I first came across it when I was up in Kidal in northern Mali. And I was looking through a lot of people's uh, memory cards of their cell phones. And I noticed, you know, Money for Nothing and these uh, dire straight songs uh, popping up a lot in people's playlists. And it stuck out to me because I was used to hearing Western music, but more along the lines of like Celine Dion or. Bob Marley, you know, not Dire Straits. It seemed sort of like an unlikely sound. But when I started talking to people about it, especially the Tuareg guitarist, uh, Tama Christ, for example, the name came up again and again, and and I realized, you know, there was this affinity for it.
4: Chris believes that this musical affinity is strongest among younger Tuareg musicians, like this band, Tama Christ. Here's a track from their 2012 album, Chatma. Listen for the way that the lead player circles around the main riffs fantastic and very, dare I say it, not
1: I I'll
5: see you today.
4: understand the Dire Straits connection. We need to go back to the beginning of Tuareg popular music. This is a track called Tarakem a love song from the 1960s Smithsonian Folkways release Tuareg Music of the Southern Sahara. It captures the sounds that are still at the root of modern Tuareg music. Traditionally, it was almost entirely performed by women. Although men would sometimes sing hunting or herding songs, social music-making was dominated by the female voice. This began to change in the 60s. After Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso became independent, the Tuareg who lived in the north began to clash with the new national governments. This political violence was compounded by terrible droughts that began to ravage the Sahel region in the late 70s and early 80s. In search of employment and security, a generation of young Tuareg men traveled on foot to Algeria and Libya. It was there, in the refugee camps or ghettos on the edges of cities, that modern
5: Tuareg music was born. Again, here's Chris Kirkley. I sort of have this imagined story of these guys showing up in the camps. They're far away from home. Back home, music is performed at night. Um, ten day music, Isuad. It's it's music performed and sung by women. And when they're there, there's no women, so they start performing this music themselves. And uh, somebody picks up a the guitar. They start composing, sitting around, banging on a you know a jerry can to make a a rhythm sounding like the 10 day back home and these songs that they start singing are political songs. They're not just poetry but they're also political anthems talking about nostalgia, talking about the home that they've lost and how they're going to go back and regain it.
4: What you're hearing now is one of those early tapes, recorded in the desert by Tanarwin and then copied over and over, passed from person to person for years. Tuareg living in northern Mali revolted against the government and their songs became the soundtrack to attempted revolution. Later on, as the two sides slowly negotiated their way towards a shaky peace, the musicians began to expand their style. Drought and politics had created the space for a youth music apart from tradition, a first in Tuareg culture. It was during this period that Tanarwin recorded their first studio album in Abidjan, Cote d'Ivoire. reflects abandoned transition. The network of tape exchange that allowed Tanarwin's music to be shared also allowed rock music to penetrate to the Tuareg for the first time, and they couldn't get enough of it. This crucial period coincided with the heyday of Dire Straits, when they dominated the European charts with every new release, and that's how Mark Knopfler became a desert guitar god. you still have to wonder how Knopfler managed to beat out Hendrix. For an answer to that, we reached Musa Kiljate, a Tuareg guitarist from Niger. The reception wasn't great from his desert campsite, but he did shed some light on things. He said that before they heard Dire Straits, Tuareg musicians played what he called a very simple blues.
2: Yeah, I did, because like, we played the guitar like blues, you know, there is not really solo, not playing solo a lot with the guitar. But when we listen to Dire Straits, making that crazy thing, playing solos, I like it. I like it a lot. I always want to listen to it again and
4: again. Musa says that Dire Straits fit in with that blues sound but pushed past it, teaching guitar players how to solo. Crucially, it was accessible to the budding musical culture. Hendrix, Musa said, was just too difficult. There wasn't anywhere to start. Chris Kirkley backs this up.
5: Now with Dire Straits, it's guitar heavy music. There's a lot of instrumental pieces of the music that's shredding up and down. I don't think that the early guitar music mirrors that type of guitar playing. I do think that people were trying to get to that level. And if you look now at the guitarists who are playing music, these guitarists are playing a quicker music that has hit that confluence. It's kind of converged with that original influence. Listen to the Tuareg star Bambino play his version of Tenere, the
4: Tenarwin song we heard earlier. Chris is right, the guitar playing is killer. So whether young musicians still listen to Dire Straits? He said no. These days they don't have to look beyond the many Tuareg guitar bands who have grown into a self-contained musical universe.
2: Now people listen to lots of band of Tuareg, of course, in Algeria. Not a lot of Western music. They listen a lot to
4: Tuareg music. But despite that. Dire Straits' cassettes can still be found in the desert, and low-quality MP3s of Money for Nothing are still traded from cell phone to cell phone. And Dire Straits, they're still
5: the biggest rock band in the Sahara. One guy I spoke to, he's a musician named Intriag Babu. He's actually now the commandant of the MNLA in Kidal. So he's a big rebel dude, but he's also a guitarist. And uh, I joked with him about if we could figure out how to invite Dire Straits to play a concert in the Sahara. And he said, oh man, that would be the one thing to reunite all the Tuaregs across all of the Sahara is a, a Dire Straits concert. So, so I haven't talked to Mark Knopfler about the idea yet, but if he's listening, it, it would be the, the perfect uh, reunification of the Tuareg diaspora.
0: Thanks Chris. Thanks Sam. For more exploration of the roots of Tuareg rock, check out our website afropop.org. Coming up, country music and pedal steel guitar in Nigeria and heavy metal in Angola. I'm Josh Collinet You're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. <laughs>
3: Lord, linger near when my life is almost gone.
0: Anyone who's been to Nigeria will tell you country music is popular, and of the American country musicians who found an audience there, no one is bigger than Jim Reeves. I used to play Jim Reeves on my program, Bonjour l'Afrique, and suddenly, Everybody was asking for Jim Reeves. It was amazing.
3: Jim Reeves was the man.
0: Known to his fans as Gentleman Jim, Reeves recorded hits in the 1950s and 60s that would come to define the cosmopolitan style of country known as the Nashville sound. Using choirs and strings, Reeves helped move country towards the pop mainstream, expanding its audience far beyond the rural fans who
3: gave the genre its start. I love you because you understand it Every single thing I try to do You're always there to lend a helping hand dear i love you most of all because you're you no matter what the world may say about me i know your love The way you, never doubt me But most of all I love you cause you're you
0: Ooh, that baritone croon Reeves, a superstar around the world. He was bigger than Elvis in South Africa, and he remains popular everywhere from Sri Lanka to Jamaica. But perhaps nowhere is Jim Reeves better loved than in Nigeria.
6: I can remember being a kid in the 80s. Jim Reeves' tapes and, and records were everywhere. It seemed as if there were new Jim Reeves records out every month. I had no idea that the man had died in 1960s Jim Reeves is an immortal. Bob Marley is also an immortal. But Jim Reeves is a completely different level.
3: No matter what the world may say about me. That
0: was Uchena Ikone, an expert on Nigerian popular music. We called him to try to understand just why Jim Reeves struck such a chord with Nigerian listeners. Uchina told us that there are elements within country music that set it apart from the rest of the so-called sentimental styles of Western pop, a catch-all category that include artists like Nat King Cole and Louis
6: Armstrong. Despite the fact that its uh, lyrical concerns were very similar to what you would find in 99% of Western pop music, which is basically, uh, you know, ups and downs of romantic relationships people tended to ascribe a kind of spiritual quality to the music is probably the sound of it a lot of these sounds had a an otherworldly quality that i believe african audiences tended to interpret as spiritually reparative so despite the fact that you know they were singing you know, you on un- left me and now I'm drinking, people really felt that there was something about that music that was beyond sensual concerns. It-, it pulls on your heartstrings, and at the same time, it wasn't really dance music. I suppose back in Nashville, people probably would do their little, you know, foxtrot or something to some of this music. But I think to the African audience, it wasn't rhythmically hot enough to really serve as dance music even as a slow to have music, so to speak. So since it wasn't really music that appealed to the body, it was perceived as something that appealed more to the soul. I have
3: lived a life of sin In this world I'm living in I have done forbidden things I shouldn't do I ask a beggar along the way If he could tell me where to stay Where I could find real happiness and love that's true Across the bridge, there's no more sorrow Across the bridge, there's no more pain The sun will shine across the river And you'll never be unhappy again
0: The popularity of Jim Reeves is a perfect example of what happens when music jumps borders. While his Nigerian fans hear something quite different than most American audiences, they aren't putting anything into the music that wasn't already there. The records really do have an otherworldly beauty. We asked Uchena why Jim Reeves has maintained his popularity when similar artists have faded from view.
6: I think it's just the fact that the music was so elevated. Like, even at the time it was released, people believed it was something that was timeless, something that was not necessarily bound by current trends. It endured because people wanted it to endure, people expected it to endure, and they treated it as music that was supposed to stand the test of time.
3: Put your sweet lips a little closer
1: to the phone
3: Let's pretend that we're together all alone I'll tell the man to turn the jukebox way down low And you can tell your friend there with you, he'll have to go
0: While Reeves Quister had few direct imitators, country do exerted a subtle influence on Nigeria's music. Singers who loved Reeves were inspired to adopt his rounded tones in everything from high life to funk. Ochena points to legendary band leader Chief Stephen Ossidibe as influenced by Reeves.
6: The smooth crooning quality of his style, that was a relative innovation in high life. Ossidibe um, was more of a crooner, a very soft, rounded voice. And you know, he often used to tell the powers of his music to cure hypertension. It was music that was supposed to make you relax and contemplate. And that was the place that country music originally occupied.
0: Listen closely to Chief Stephen Ossidibe, and you can hear exactly what Uchena is talking about
7: de na mpon komforta mo nu jono do fa ne
0: Country also helped introduce Nigeria to the pedal steel guitar, an instrument whose heavenly sliding tone can be heard on many of the genre's biggest hits of the 60s and 70s. It would have been a surprise for the musicians playing on those records to learn that, on the other side of the world, The pedal steel was quickly becoming a popular element in a very different musical style Juju. Here is Synchro Feelings off of Synchro Chapter 1 by King Sonny Ade and his African Beats. Released in 1977, it was the first Juju album to feature what was called the Hawaiian Guitar, played by Demola Adepoju.
2: In the bar of the bar in the bar of in the baro We're Pini baru, pini baru, pini baru, pini baru, mma manu di modele. Hisha <muchas> jesa man biyo ko modele. Dele? So, why do they call
0: it? To- an Hawaiian guitar. We know Nigerians heard the pedal steel in country music. King Sonyade, like many others, grew up listening to artists like Jim Reeves. But according to Mike Perlowin, the story of pedal steel in Nigeria actually starts in Hawaii.
8: Mola's first exposure was to the non-pedaled steel. He was in Lagos, where he lived, and he heard a record of Hawaiian music, which uses the non pedal steel, and he thought, I want to learn to play that instrument. What he told me was that he scoured the docks, because Lagos is a seaport town, and he asked sailors if any of them had a Hawaiian guitar very specifically Hawaiian. And uh, eventually somebody did, and he bought it. He taught himself a few licks in secret. And he was playing in some amateur band, and they were doing some Battle of the Bands, and they were losing it. So he ran home, grabbed his lap steel, and started playing his Hawaiian steel, non-pedal, on a few licks. Uh, And nobody had ever heard that sound before. Consequently, they won the Battle of the Bands. Now, the way I understand it, somebody brought him to the attention of Ebenezer Obey, King Sunny Day's competitor, and he said no. And then they brought him to King Sunny Day and Sunny Day said, Let's try it.
0: Aside from the competition with Chief Commander Ebenezer Obey, there was another reason Ade was drawn to the sound of pedal steel. It reminded him of the traditional Nigerian instrument called
7: goje. I don't just introduce anything to the band just like that. I'll go and see what my ancestors have introduced. Then I will say okay. I think not to deviate from the line of the uh, ancestors, I looked into what they have introduced and I said to myself, something missing. This African violin is missing in this Juju music. What, what will I do? And I said, okay, I use guitar to play something like that. Until one day in London and I saw the real pedestal. I say, okay, this is what it's called pedestal. I said, can you play it? So the guy plays a little bit. I said, that's enough. That's what I want to get. I bought it. I took it back home. And I call I a young fool called Demola De, De I call him to come. You know, he saw it. He plays on the on, on the guitar before. When he saw it, he said, Oh. Where I, where now on this? So I told him to react. We react very well on the night on my nightclub. I just told everybody, I have a new thing for you tonight, and that's all. I didn't say what I want for them. So everybody sat like, tonight. So then when the guitar started, it's a different thing entirely.
0: This is Yusuf Olatunji with Wahabi Ayinla Adetun, a song that features the Goje, the African violin Ade was referring to. Most Westerners first heard Juju when Ade's album Juju Music was released by Island Records in 1982. That album begins with Jafunmi, a track filled with Demola's brilliant pedal steel. Alas playing on the album, Amazed, Mike Perlowin.
8: He did not discover some very elementary stuff, but he did discover some advanced stuff. He just explored it. The style of playing that is on that record, there's absolutely no relation to American country style pedal steel playing, none whatsoever.
0: Eventually, the instrument also made it into Fuji, the working class Islamic style that partially displaced Juju in the 1990s. Here is Fuji Icon, Chief Dr. Sikiru Ayinde Barrister with his classic 1991 release, Refined Fuji Garbage. Today in Nigeria, pedal steel is no longer such a fixture, and juju itself isn't as popular as it once was. But the jagged path that brought pedal steel from Hawaii to Nashville to Nigeria shows just how unexpectedly tastes can overlap, linking cultures that might otherwise stay completely separate. To hear more amazing African pedal steel, be sure to visit our website, afropop.org. Funding for Afropop worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station.
9: Yeah, so I'm Jeremy Chido. I am the director of Death Metal Angola. We are sitting here in the offices of Afropop in the dark uh, on a day where there's no electricity. which, weirdly enough, actually reminds me a lot of working in Angola, because um, we would consistently have the electricity go out uh, in the middle of shoots, or um, there would sometimes be concerts that, that uh, the metal musicians. So.
0: Now we travel south. Our guide is filmmaker Jeremy Shido, who produced the film Death Metal Angola, a documentary following two Angolans, Sonia Ferreira and Wilker Flores, as they attempt to put on their country's first ever rock festival. Sonia and Wilker live in Wombo, a once beautiful city decimated by the civil wars of the 1990s. There they run an orphanage for boys,
9: displaced by the brutal fighting. The center of the country was sort of the primary battlegrounds. It was one of the, the most devastated region in the country. Uh, happened around the siege of two neighboring towns called Huambo and Cuito. There was a siege of something like 100 days or 120 days. And then the surrounding areas were mined, and so with anti-personnel landmines. And so what had once been an extremely stately town, was sort of the jewel in the crown of the Portuguese empire, was devastated, absolutely devastated. And the number of dead was extraordinary.
0: Angola's long civil war finally ground to a close around 2002, and soon the nation, funded by enormous quantities of natural resources, began to rebuild. Jeremy traveled to Angola to document this process. This brought him to Huambo, where he met Wilker at the city's only decent café.
9: We uh, started talking, he asked me what I was doing, I said, oh, I'm making a movie about, you know, Chinese construction workers rebuilding the... uh Bengala Railway line, and uh, he said, oh, that's cool. And I said, well, well what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm a musician. I said, oh, that's great. What do you play? He said, death metal. Um, and I was uh, flummoxed, uh, I was confused for a moment. And I was like, I was like excuse me? And he said, uh, yeah, I play death metal. I was like, are you, can, can I hear you play? Can will you play for me, you know? and are you playing at any point? he's like, well, yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Well, um, here, uh, um, why don't you meet me tonight at uh, here? And he gave me an address and said meet me at the orphanage, which I assumed was a club.
0: Well, as you probably guessed, this orphanage wasn't a club. The orphanage was an orphanage. Which that night didn't have power.
9: So there was Wilker, who I had met at the cafe, siphoning electricity from his neighbor, whose generator was working, and he was able to get a long enough cable to plug in his amplifier, but not a microphone. And so, and there were no lights. So we lit it with the headlights of the SUV of the Chinese construction workers. And Wilker began to play this incredible open air concert.
0: Jeremy found that the community of musicians playing metal in Angola thrived on its expressive potential. Music this extreme reflected their often overwhelming circumstances and allowed them to speak in ways otherwise impossible.
9: That moment I realized that there's a kind of a depth to the experience of playing that music and for me of listening to that music that resonated with so many more elements of the recent and distant history of this place than I had ever expected. And what initially started off as a novelty very quickly gave way to the profundity of the experience of how you navigate and come out of uh, calamity and destruction and death in a way that allows you to then live.
0: As with many of our stories today, pinning down exactly how metal first came to Angola is difficult, if not impossible. Ultimately, it may not matter, but we can say this,
9: once in Angola, the music connected and found fertile room to grow. It happened the way that music movements happen, that they're local, and it's about people who know about what their counterparts are doing in the next city or in the next town, who then decide to get together and then to travel to that town. People started to share not only music from abroad, but they started to share their own music. It wasn't like, oh, this is Metallica playing, or this is, you know, Children's Bodom. This is like, this is before Crush, and they're in Lobito. And we want to get them to Luanda to play in this club that we've started to do. And, and then they would start to like work off of each other.
0: Jeremy believes that this determined creativity offers a vital lesson for Americans facing their own challenges. With that in mind, he has launched the Resilience Tour, taking his film across the United States to audiences in communities devastated by violence, economic collapse, or natural disaster. A native of Detroit, he has faced these challenges firsthand and sees the story of Angola as linked to his own experience.
9: I always think of Detroit as being extraordinarily resilient. People are always like, well, Detroit's making a comeback now. And, and I, you know, I get slightly offended by it. I was like, well, we've always been there. And we've always been coming back. And we've always been surviving. And you know, there are people who are living lives and somehow making it through the hardest days. And it's not just because people are coming from the outside and starting to find you know inexpensive real estate and make new lives. It's that the strength of Detroit lies on the character of the inhabitants, citizens of Detroit that have been there. Throughout, And I always thought that, like, I want to show this film to my friends and family and people in my neighborhood back in Detroit, because it's like they'll see it, they'll understand it, they'll get it, and it's inspiring. It's inspiring to keep going, but also to figure out how do you build something powerful? How do you build into the future using what you already have at your disposal? Thank you, Jeremy, for speaking with us. Death Metal
0: Angola is available for download on iTunes or through the website deathmetalangola.org. Check it out. You won't regret it. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the Nigerian Independence Day celebration, Culture Night, October 6th at Jamaica Performing Arts Center, Parade and Street Festival, October 7th, on Second Avenue, Midtown Manhattan. More info: www.oanweb.org. That's oanweb.org.
2: me <música>
0: Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Sam Backer and Jesse Brandt. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Stephanie Lebeau. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our director of new media is Akornefa Achia. And I'm Georges Colinet.
2: <laughs>